You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Burton Raffel is a translator, poet, and scholar. His translations include Beowulf, Don Quixote, The Red and the Black, and Gargantua and Pantagruel. He's written The Art of Translating Prose and The Art of Translating Poetry. His newest translation is The Canterbury Tales by Geoffrey Chaucer. Thank you for joining me, Burton. Thank you for having me. Burton, let's talk a little bit just about your general work as a, a translator. You translate primarily from other languages into English and you translate both prose and poetry. How many other languages do you know, and what? how many other uh, translations do you do? Well, I, I, I have reading knowledges of, of a fair number. I've translated uh, from Old English, Middle English, Old French, Middle French, French, uh, Middle High German, um, Old Spanish, Modern Spanish, Catalan, Italian, I've done some Latin, and uh, my my f- favorite of all is Indonesian. I lived two years in Indonesia, and uh, I translate and edit, or I have in the past. I'm not doing much of it now. Uh, Indonesian uh, poetry, primarily. Uh, I'm I'm I was I'm more a poet than anything else. I think I'm a writer secondarily to being a poet, and I'm a translator. Uh, in a tertiary position. I, I don't think of translation, even though I, God knows I recognize its importance, I don't think of it in, from the point of view of the person doing it. Uh, I don't think of it as, as the highest art. When I am translating a piece, I am not the equal of the person I am translating, and usually that's absolutely <laughs> true, uh, I, my job is to be the kind of shadow, the kind of secondary person who uh, manipulates his or her uh, work into, into English. And my responsibilities are to the uh, original author and to my modern audience. Those are the two responsibilities that, that I think are primary for a translator. Now, let's talk a little bit about poetry. Um, as a, One of the things you say in the beginning of the art of translating prose is that for poetry, you can't recreate the sounds or phonology, the, the no, syntax, you, you, vocabulary, literary history, no. forms, none of this. H- how, mm. can you, how can you go ahead if you can't recreate any of that? Well, you, it goes even further uh, than that. Uh, th- I used to say to, to my students, there's a phrase from one of Baudelaire's uh, poems, ange ou sirène. Never mind what it means. None of those sounds exist in English. When I translate Indonesian poetry, the sentence we all learn at Cornell when we learn to speak Indonesian is the following. Wow. Now, uh, yes, that, that is, I can rip it off like crazy now, but when I first met it and when we all first meet it, it broke our teeth as, as English uh, speakers. Um, you can't make those sounds 
in any other language. You can't make them, certainly, uh, in English. And yet, you can follow the flow and movement of the poem, and if you are a poet, and a pretty good poet, you can construct something in English which is viable in English and yet reflects that movement in the original. Example, when uh, Rendra, uh, one of the best of the modern Indonesian poets, came to the United States and I knew he was coming, I did a kind of a festschrif, a kind of celebration for him, and translated a large batch of his poems. And since he knows English quite well, and he's a professional actor and director as well as a, as a poet, when he did a reading tour in the United States, he would read both his original and my translation. And he came back and he said, you know, Burton, when I read your translations, they sound like the movement of my poems in Indonesian. I think that's the nicest compliment I've ever been paid. Now, this gets straight to the heart of what you talk about in The Art of Translating Prose, is this idea of syntactic movement. Could you explain uh, what exactly you mean by that? Well, syntax is uh, not grammar. Syntax means how you arrange and organize uh, the elements of your language, putting it as, as non-specifically as, as possible. Uh, the syntax is what controls the, the transmission of something intelligible uh, to, the, to the audience, whatever the audience uh, may be. And syntax cannot be duplicated in another language. Syntax, the organization uh, of, uh, for example, I've just been translating Dante, and the organization of Dante's sentences uh, simply cannot be reproduced uh, in English. And if you do reproduce it in English, and you follow very, very faithfully Dante's 14th century Italian structure, you end up with garbage. It just it, it comes across as stilted, stiff, impossible, forced, and uninteresting, which has been, incidentally, uh, the judgment of most people who cannot read Dante in the original of Dante's poetry. They have enormous respect and very little enjoyment. Well, one of the things that, that um, y you talk about is how culture operates on, on a lexicon and the shapes of word meanings and phrases. It, yes, it does. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, so tell us a bit about when you translate, you're translating not just the language, but the, the bigger task, the greater task, is to, to translate the culture, isn't it? Yes, it, it's absolutely true. And you've got to know the culture. I was once um, asked to judge a translation of, a, of, a, of an Indonesian novel. And the man obviously knew Indonesian, and he had the the uh, the protagonist who was riding a bicycle because most Indonesians then at least could not afford any other form of transportation. Uh, the young man was on a bicycle, and the, uh, the 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 translator put in a phrase which suggested that the man was traveling in the uh, early evening, and I won't go into the, 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 the particular lexicon, but the word that he used in question does not mean 
evening, because evening means in English prelude to night or beginning darkness or however you, you, you think of, of, of evening. Uh, and it sometimes means night. You can say good evening to somebody and it means good night. You can say it as a farewell, uh, usually as a farewell. And uh, the word in Indonesian refers to a time of day just after general nap time, which means about 3 to 4 o'clock in the afternoon. And it is not approaching darkness at all. And obviously the man who translated it knew the language, knew it quite well, but he did not have a sufficient grounding in the culture. And uh, this makes a very large difference in translation. This happens, by the way, uh, a very interesting example. Uh, I'm a lawyer. I, I'm here in New Haven to, to celebrate the 50th reunion of my class at the Yale Law School. And one of my friends, who was trilingual, German, French, and, and English, was asked to uh, review and, if necessary, correct a translation from a French, uh, Frenchman's uh, book about some aspect of law. I don't remember what it was. And my friend could not read the translation at all. And he looked at the original and was horrified to see that what he was reading was, was, was a mishmash. And what, it, what had happened was that the person wanting the translation had hired someone who was absolutely bilingual, someone who could speak, uh, read, write, live in the cultures of both England and or in the United States or France, but was not a lawyer and therefore could not conceptualize like a lawyer and produced English, which simply had to be thrown into the garbage can and the whole thing had to be done again by someone who understood, in this case, the narrower culture, that is the legal culture, uh, that was being represented. It's a rather complex process. It, it sounds like it. Now, one thing you talk about is that all cultures have developed poetry, haven't they? That have developed That's language. True. As far as we can tell from all cultures, alive or dead, there has always been poetry. This seems to be absolutely, uh, absolutely universal. All peoples, no matter when, no matter where, no matter how they live, have some forms of poetry. But on the other hand, prose has only been developed in, in, in cultures where they've actually developed writing. And I think this is really yes. fascinating observation. Because what happens is uh, the organization, this is what I try to deal with in my book on the art of, of translating prose, the organization of prose is necessarily different because poetry is not primarily intended to convey information. Prose is. It's intended either to give us uh, non-fictive information or fictive information. Uh, that is not poetry's job, and it's not what poetry does the best. We, we've had, there was an explosion of, quote, poetic novels in in Victorian England, and nobody can read them today. They're horrible. Even even written, George Eliot, a magnificent writer of, 
of prose novels, one of the very best novelists in the history of, of, of English literature, wrote a, uh, a poetic novel of that sort. And uh, it's awful. It's absolutely awful because poetry isn't meant for that sort of thing. The closest that you come to that kind of thing is some of the ancient ec epics, uh, Homer, for example. Those are narrative poems, and a narrative poem comes somewhat closer, takes a big step closer uh, to, to conveying information and to novelistic things, but it doesn't go all the way. So there, there really is no prose until people start to write and have to organize the information in the way that, that prose wants. The, I, as a lawyer, I think of the United States uh, Internal Revenue Code. That is prose. You try to put that in poetry. <laughs> uh, that, would, that would be an amusing thing. Ridiculous, too. Burton, yes. one of the things that, that really interested me was the idea that written English is itself a form of translation. Uh, our written language is a form of translation of what we speak. So our, we're all translating almost all the time, in a sense, aren't we? Yeah, I usually like to call it a subset, using the mathematical term, um, because it, it, it's, it's that, it means the same thing, really. Uh, it, it just takes away some of the uh, bad associations that, that people have and, and misassociations that people have with translations. But you're quite right. It is that, and it is very, very different, and it is very clear. Uh, as, as a professional teacher of, 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 of English, I have had to deal with people who are native speakers of English, including some lawyers, uh, who can speak, understand, and read English perfectly. When they write it, because they have not had the experience of the written word, which means reading, uh, they, they cannot organize prose properly. When I give a speech, as I have in the past, to, to a, a law school first-year class, I always ask them, I say, I'm going to ask you a question, and you do not have to answer this. You will not be given a quiz on it. You will not be held responsible. I would just like to know, put your hand up, if since the age of six, you have read independently of your school assignments at least one book every month for every year of your life up till now. And I usually get about two-thirds of the people saying that they have and one-third saying that they have not. And then I say to them, now I will address the one-third which says that it has not read. And I will say to you flatly and accurately on the basis of very long knowledge you are handicapped. You are in a law school where you are going to be required to write, and you will be judged to a very considerable extent on your writing. If you get out and practice law, you will be judged to a considerable extent on your writing, and you are handicapped just as surely as if you'd lost your legs or your feet or any other part of your body. And uh, it's a very, very difficult process. Learning how to make the switch from spoken English to written English 
is not an entirely unsolved problem. I, I, I thought once I had a solution and I had a victim, uh, a, a young lawyer whose firm wanted me to help him to write properly because they wanted to retain and keep him, but they couldn't spend as much time as they did correcting his English. It just, his written English, it just, it, it, was, it, was, it was a dead weight on the firm. So they paid me to try to train him. And I tried, and the problem wasn't the, the mechanism that I devised, but him. He wouldn't, after a certain point, he wouldn't do it. He felt that he, he had a BA, he had a, a JD, he, he was a lawyer, and he should not be obliged to do this kind of thing. And he simply refused to do it. And then, you know, I told the firm he refuses to do it. That, it's up to you guys. You do what you whatever. I don't know how it was resolved. But what I had him doing more than anything else was taking home passages. I would prepare them very carefully, pass excerpts from both uh, prose and, and some poetry, but mostly prose. And I would have him, uh, his assignment was to take them home, read them, understand them, and then try to read them aloud in such a measured way that anybody listening to him would immediately understand the various signals that were given in the prose text. Signals like commas, semicolons, exclamation marks, periods, quotation marks, uh, all of the assorted symbols, even the symbols that, that, we, that we find in prose, not only because of the syntax, but because of word separation. Um, uh, somebody might say, Someone who speaks very, very um, casual English might say, um, I got a knot of something. And you, you have the expression not a. But if someone pronounces nada, we don't know where the separation is. We don't know where the words break. And if you don't know where the words break, when it's spoken, you don't hear it. So in a sense, what I was asking him to do was to master as you put it, the translation, namely the written product, and then retranslate it back into the spoken English, and then he would have a grip coming in both directions and would be able to write. We never got to finish that experiment, however. One of the things that you talk about when, when you talk about translating Old English, um, you talk about translating, and this is a really interesting concept, uh, King Alfred, uh, one of the earliest uh, mm -hmm. pieces of prose. And what you get, get at is this idea of the movement of ideas in King mm -hmm. Alfred's mind. Could you talk about what you mean by the movement of ideas? Well, uh, what, what I was thinking about, I had looked at, as, as one does, one looks and sees what other people have done with with uh, tricky phrases, and, and I'm sure we all, as translators, borrow sometimes from other uh, translators because they've solved a problem in a way that uh, ends the discussion. But uh, I was thinking of a particular example where a translator had modern English eyes, some of King Alfred, and eliminated some of the very important signals that Alfred was giving to his readers. For example, if Alfred would say, now here, H-E-A-R, 
comma, and he'd say, here, again, comma, because what he was saying the second time was, you had better listen, this is the king speaking, and I want you to know what I am saying. But this translator, and I'm, I'm, I'm inventing the example, it was pretty close to this, I don't have the text in front of me, what the translator said, now here, comma, this is what I have said, and the heart of that doesn't communicate the regal threat and power that comes through on the duplication of, of the verb. That, that is the kind of thing that I mean. You have to know the culture and what Alfred was thinking, what he was meaning. That was how I translated uh, Beowulf. Uh, it was the first long Old English poem. It's virtually the only long English poem, but, but it's not quite. Uh, it's the only good one. Uh, I, I broke the sections of Beowulf into sections of anywhere from 35 to 50 lines, which, which had a kind of, of unity. And then I gathered from all the sources I could, and they're all unfortunately written because we have no native speakers of Old English any longer, I, and I would study all of the uh, uses of the word, that is, the different, the different associations of that one particular word can have, uh, and I would copy them down in my in my book. It, it increases. It, it makes for an incredibly marked up uh, text. But this is what I had to do because when I translate a word, for example, which could mean son, child, friend, young man, etc., 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 I had to know what range of possibilities existed, so I could figure out from the text which of the particular meanings the poet intended to make. And when I had done that, let's say for 35 lines, and worked all of that out, that would take a lot of time. But then for me, as a poet, putting it into poetry took a relatively short time. Once I knew as certainly as I could possibly make myself know just what the poet intended to say and what he meant us to hear, then I could go ahead and do it. There's an example of that in the very, very beginning of Beowulf. Uh, they're praising someone, and they say he was a very, very good king. He took the seats from the Mead Hall away from many noble warriors. Now, I have seen translations that say uh, this man took the seats away from many warriors uh, in the Mead Hall. And it sounds like he's some kind of practical joker going around and pulling the chairs out from underneath him. That is not what it means. What it means is that he defeated them in battle, took them prisoners, and made them slaves. And after that, they no longer had access to the mead hall, the place of drinking, where the free warriors were. They couldn't go in there. They were forbidden to go in there because their status was now different. And that's what the Old English meant. The Old English poet knew that. Everybody in his audience, because for the most part it was communicated by oral transmission, most of the people in his audience would have known instantly. In fact, all of them would have known instantly what he was saying. But they have a different way of saying it. And we have to understand that in order to translate that. 
It's not accidental, parenthetically, that many, many of my uh, translations, especially from poetry, obviously, are from the uh, the ancient worlds, especially the the medieval European worlds, because that's an e- era that that really fascinates me, and uh, there's a tremendous amount of cross-cultural uh, information, cross-cultural words. There's a fascinating example in in the Canterbury Tales, which unfortunately I I, I could not translate directly. Uh, Chaucer is talking about someone who is a no good person. Uh, a thief, etc., and he calls him a gamith, and that is Yiddish. And what we need to know is that Chaucer knew what that word meant. He had spent quite a bit of time in Italy on the king's and his own business, and he read Italian and spoke Italian very, very fluently, and he had obviously met some Italian Jews, and he liked the word gamith, so he put it in a poem. Uh, I'm I'm not sure how many of his readers fully understood that, but uh, that's a problem about which we have almost no information. One of the things that that I thought was the most fascinating part of your uh, translating book on translating prose was the way that you would analyze uh, almost mathematically a paragraph yes. of prose and look at the number of, of the, the placement of the punctuation and mm-hmm. use that as a measure of how mm-hmm. well translated something is. Could you talk about why that, and that gets to this movement, syntactic movement idea, how absolutely without even knowing the words, what the words mean, that's secondary to you in a sense, isn't it? No, not quite. No, I, I keep the, the words. The words are the element of transition, and I, I don't think of transmission, and I don't think them that they are secondary, not at all. They give us the initial clue, but they don't give us all the information. There, there are other aspects, uh, like syntax, and syntax is expressed in many different ways. It can be, ex- it can, it can be expressed between man, bites, dog. Take the same words, dog bites man, and it's, <laughs> it's completely a different expression. We, we use punctuation in substitution for many of the things that we use in spoken English. We use intonation, and see, when my, when my voice goes up like that, you know I'm going to say more. But if I said, we use intonation, that's it. I've said it. I've finished. I've reached what we would say in written English was a period. And uh, if I say, I have three oranges, in prose, we would probably use a colon there. But in spoken English, we say, I have three oranges. And you level out your voice, and then you say, uh, this one, uh, that one, and the other one. Uh, this one, comma, except there is no comma. When you say, uh, this one, you have a slightly longer pause than you would have uh, when you, you say, uh, uh, he's a very happy man. You've got all of the words separated, but you don't say, he's a uh, very, I mean, people will think you have a, a very sa- a sad disease. Um, th- all of these are elements of, of syntax. And if I think to some extent mathematically, it is not that I am a mathematician, 
but rather that I entered college as a physics major. And I have a, a great respect for the physics approach to the world. Not that I'm a, a physicist or can speak uh, in any way uh, for that uh, branch of science or, or any other branch of science. I am not trained in those things. But I borrow uh, where I can find intelligent um, parallels and reinforcements uh, for, for what I'm doing. I do that all the time. Uh, when, I, when I teach some of these things to uh, very young students, uh, I love to teach, or I used to love to teach freshman English because they're, they're so raw and they're so unknowing and they haven't yet firmed up all their mistakes and you can wipe some of them out. Some of the things that, that I want them to understand, I can show them by using physics-type diagrams on the, on the blackboard, or sometimes by using uh, the kind of vector analysis. I don't know if you're familiar with that. If, if a wind is blowing north-northwest, you can demonstrate that by, by, by an arrow which, which is uh, closer to the north side than to the west side, and, and someone will see that you're doing that, that, that vector represents north-northwest. We do much the same kind of we do much the same kind of thing in in written and in spoken English. We use uh, different kinds of vectors. For example, I used to give them this example: a boy approaches a girl and says, "You want to go to the movies tonight?" She can say, "No." She can say, mm. "She can say, mm, yeah." And all of those things have vectors in them in the spoken language it's very difficult to, to, to put into the into the written language and so people use some people invent all kinds of wild ways of, of trying to express the things that they're used to expressing in, in spoken English but you can't that easily express in written English and sometimes you simply have to say uh, it, th what you do in spoken English is what you do in spoken English and leave it there because you cannot fully reproduce it. James Joyce refused to accept that fact. And at the end of his life, he wrote a fascinating, ghastly book, Finnegan's Wake. Have you ever tried to read it? No, I've never. <laughs> never well, that, that's, one, that's one white whale I've never chased. Well, it's it's uh, you know uh, if there's, he's recorded one little section of it, and that's remarkable, because the the little section that he's recorded is comprehensible, and the rest of it simply isn't. He takes things apart and 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 puts it on. You know, the bubbles ring up the him What's he talking about? I don't know. It's called a novel. I don't know why it's called a novel. I. I, I don't know what's going on. I'm, I'm not really very stupid, you know, and, and uh, I, I refuse to spend time reading something like that. It's a, it's a noble uh, attempt to do what nobody is allowed to do. It, it, it's kind of like uh, uh, Achilles' friend, and I'm trying to remember his name right now, who, who says, Achilles, if you're going to stay in your, in your tent, at least let me have your, your armor and your marvelous sword, and I can fight for the Greeks. And Achilles finally lets him do that. And the other guy is 
fighting against the Trojans and is beating them, and all of a sudden, there, there is a god, and the god doesn't like this, and the man is down, and that's it. He's finished. Uh, there's, a, there's a British poet whose name... <laughs> This is something that happens to older people whose name for the moment escapes me, but, but he's done a lot of free translating of Homer. And here, what he does to convey this, he says, he, the, he gets to the top of the wall, and there was, and then you have a word which is set in about 96-inch uh, type, you know, and the god's name is given. And uh, that's it. Uh, you, you know, when, when, when a little human being expressed in 12-point uh, type is confronted with someone in 90-point type, the battle's over before it begins. <laughs> that, no, that's a fascinating observation. Uh, one of the things that, that um, some of the other translators that I've talked to ha- have talked about is how when you're doing a translation, you, even a, a single word can change the entire arc uh, yes. of a translation. Could you, has that ever happened to you, or do you? Oh yes, have, you have examples of where, when it's happened to other translators. Well, I I, I have a, a one example of my own is is, is perhaps almost sufficient. Uh, I remember struggling enormously with with uh, in Don Quixote, and, and again I can't think of the exact word, but I can tell you the meaning. The word means uh, in 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 spanish something that is higher than the attic and less used even than an attic and uh, a reference is made to that uh in in a in a passage of, of of speech and how do you translate something that does not exist in english into a word which will not betray what the meaning is in the original uh, language. And what I found, what I had to do, and again, I don't have any texts with me to, 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 to quote. I'm not good at quoting even myself. Um, what I decided had to be done was the verb had to carry that rather than the noun because the noun couldn't carry it. There was no English noun that would convey exactly the sense of that particular Spanish word, but we have verbs that can do this. And then even if you call it uh, uh, an, an attic, before you get to attic, you have the uh, verb, because English works subject, verb, uh, object, noun, whatever. Um, you, you can color the situation with the verb and therefore make the noun mean something slightly different. You have to be extremely analytical sometimes in doing translation. Yes, it's quite true. One of the the perils of translation that you talk about, and this is with regards to, to Chaucer's prose, is that good and bad poetry, you suggest, are still just poetry to the translator. And a lot of translators throughout history have seen fit to attempt to improve poetry that maybe wasn't they felt wasn't up to snuff, mm-hmm. and also mm-hmm. uh, to on the fly edit out those facts and words which mm-hmm. were they deemed objectionable. Yes. Could you talk well, about uh, 
at your own experiences trying to resist the inner editor in you? Well, I don't. I really, I really don't want to do that. What I did, I had one example. For example, the word quaint, uh, Q U E Y N T E, quainta in 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 Middle English, means in modern English the vaginal opening. Uh, it, it's the direct antecedent of the English word cunt. And since the publisher wanted the book to be used in schools, I simply couldn't use that word. So it, it, was, it was a man grabbing at a woman. So I had him grab at her crotch, which conveys exactly the sense without using an offensive word. Um, this is a problem that, that does... Uh, uh, arise if I had <laughs> I had one uh, reviewer of uh, of my Rabelais translation uh, said you know uh, you've used the word shit so many times couldn't you just say something milder uh, the man says oh shit couldn't he say uh, oh muck or oh and I said no I, as a matter of fact, Rabelais, the author of this very strange book, ends a chapter with 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 a sputtering iteration. I believe it's something like forty-three different words in French for shit, and you can't you you can't avoid that. You, I, my problem was finding forty-three different words because English is not so plentiful in these things. Medieval French was, was really, really rich in ordure uh, because it was all over the place. As a translator, could you talk about the problems you have when dealing with previous translations? You're, when you're translating something anew, you have these landmarks behind you. Could you talk about how that uh, impacts your ability to translate? It, it doesn't in any way. Uh, uh, for example, Longfellow's translation uh, of Dante is something I, I simply I, I looked at as a child because it was illustrated uh, in, in, in very, very, very nice ways. Uh, and my father liked it, and uh, I looked at it, and it didn't mean very much to me anyway at that point. But no, I don't really uh, consider prior translations. I will not do, except in this one case, I will not do a translation if I'm offered the opportunity to do a translation, I will not do it if, in my opinion, one of the extant translations is a good one. If it's a good one, I'm, I'm not interested in, in competing with it. I have, if I translate something, I want to bring something to the readers which is not otherwise available. And if I if, if, if there is no need for me to do that, then there's no need for me to translate. I, I'm not interested in doing the, you know, I, I, I said to some, I've said to some editors, I don't want to do the 150th recording of Beethoven's Third Piano Concerto. If there are 149, that's enough. I, I, I don't need to do another one. Um, just as for many years I resisted translating Chaucer because in my generation and for many years, uh, Chaucer's Middle English was accessible with very, very little effort, comparatively speaking, to intelligent college students. I met it for the first time in college when I was 16, and it was a little bit quaint, but I had no 
trouble learning, and it's not because I'm a genius or anything. Everybody in my class uh, got it. And in fact, we had to memorize the first 18 lines in Middle English and stand up in class and recite them. Uh, that's a standard uh, kind of thing. You couldn't do that today. Uh, students are not oriented to the printed page as once they were, and they also have not been trained uh, sufficiently to undertake, let's think of them as horses jumping. Uh, if a horse can jump a six-foot hedge, uh, it can jump a five-foot hedge. But if, if you present a horse that has only jumped a two-foot hedge with a four-foot hedge, he's not going to be able to jump it, usually. He's not, he's not used to doing that. And this is, this is what we have today uh, in, uh, as far as I know, American education. I can't speak for British or French or Dutch or German, although I think their educational systems are ahead of ours uh, at this point. We have a remarkably unskilled, untrained group of people coming into the university, and then we have a lot of nonsense going on in the four years they're at the university, and sometimes they get into graduate school, and they are sadly unprepared. I've been speaking with Burton Raphael. He's a translator whose latest work is his translation of the Canterbury Tales by Geoffrey Chaucer. Thank you for joining me, Burton. Thank you for having me. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.